Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Salaries average $70,000 a year. Just go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Athletic Greens. And Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash Peter to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thursday was the final day of the first quarter for the financial markets. Monday, April 1st, was the first day of the second quarter, April Fool's Day. And the first quarter would have been decisively worse had so many fools not bought the dip in the last few weeks of March because before that rally, the numbers were even worse. But even with that bounce, this was the worst first quarter for stocks since Q1 of 2020, which of course was a disaster because that was the beginning of COVID-19 and the markets really got killed during that particular time period. But I think that those fools who bought in the last few weeks of March are going to be separated from their money in the second quarter. In fact, there's an old Wall Street adage sell in May and go away. And, you know, even though it doesn't rhyme, I wouldn't wait until May. I would sell and go away in April because there is a lot of risk in these stocks. But let's take a look at what happened to the major markets during the first quarter. The Dow was down 4.6%. The S&P 500, a little worse, down 5%. And the NASDAQ was down just over 9% on the quarter, 9.1%. Of course, at one point, the NASDAQ was in bear market territory before we got this bounce. A much worse story for the more speculative wing of the NASDAQ. Kathy Wood, the ARK Innovation Fund, 
suffered a 30% decline on the quarter, probably the worst quarter in the history of that fund. By the way, on Friday, Morningstar came out with a really scathing takedown of Kathy Wood. They went over her entire fund, her strategy, her approach to risk and diversification, and they really were very critical of Kathy and the fund itself, something that I had already done myself on this podcast. And Morningstar mentioned some of the same points that I made in my criticism of Kathy Wood. This fund is not nearly finished going down. There is a lot more downside. We are going to take out the lows from the first quarter, probably as early as the second quarter. And we still have a long way to go on the downside. By the way, Trader Summit, an event that I'm going to be participating in, they tried to arrange a debate between me and Kathy Wood. And I, of course, agreed to debate. Kathy Wood refused the invitation. Now, I don't blame her for not wanting to debate me. But the fact that she wasn't willing to do it, I think, speaks volumes because she's out there trying to get as much publicity as possible. And the fact that she would turn down the opportunity to get additional publicity really shows you that she doesn't have the courage to face a real critic in a live debate. You know, going from the sublime to the ridiculous when it comes to stocks, the meme stocks actually didn't do that bad. GameStop was actually up 12% during Q1 after having a vicious collapse. It had a spectacular rise. And in fact, there was an even bigger gain in the aftermarket on Thursday where the stock was up an additional 20% based on the announcement of a stock split. Now, of course, a stock split adds no new value to the company. It's simply taking the company and dividing it into more pieces. So if you have a pie and it's cut in fourths and you take the same pie and you cut it in eighths, there's no more pie. You just have twice as many smaller pieces. And that's exactly what happens when you split a stock. You don't change the fundamental value of the company. You just have more shares, but each share represents a smaller fraction of the total whole. But they announced this because everybody knows that the market responds to a stock split by buying. And of course, since meme stocks have nothing whatsoever to do with the fundamentals, well, then obviously a stock split may be even more positive for a stock where fundamentals mean nothing than for more traditional stocks where at least fundamentals mean something. And that's probably why you saw this 20% spike in the after hours trading. But what's significant is that that entire gain was surrendered when the market opened on Friday. And in fact, GameStop ended up down on the day, down just under 1%. I think that indicates the peak in this bear market rally in GameStop. And look out below, it's going to be a vicious quarter, I think, for this particular stock. Now, AMC, the other major meme stock, was down on the quarter. It was down 9.3%. Of course, it was down a lot more than that before the bear market rally. But interestingly enough, in the after hours on Thursday night, it was up big too, not quite as much as GameStop, but I think it was up near 10% on the news that GameStop was splitting. Now, what does that have to do with AMC? It's a completely different company and it's not splitting. So why should it go up because GameStop is going up, and that's because it's a meme stock, and they all trade 
together, even though they have nothing to do with one another other than the fact that they've somehow been given the title of meme stock. And so if one meme stock goes up, well, then they all go up because it's all the same thing because none of it means anything. Well, AMC not only surrendered all of those pre-open gains, AMC actually finished today down better than 5%. So a huge reversal there. Again, AMC is in for a rough second quarter and a rough year as this dead cat bounce in these meme stocks ends and the next leg of the bear market begins. And just like Kathy Wood stocks and meme stocks got roughed up during the quarter, the same applied to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, although a lot of the losses were clearly mitigated in the waning weeks of the quarter. Bitcoin still had a down quarter, I think down about 3.5%. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust did even worse. It finished the quarter down 11%, although a lot of those losses were made up on the first day of the second quarter. GBTC was up almost 5% on Friday, and I think Bitcoin itself completely recovered everything that had been lost during the first quarter, although I think that Bitcoin is going to have a rough Q2, just like a lot of these other overpriced, hyped up stocks that recovered a good chunk of their losses on that buy the dip mentality during the end of the first quarter, where a lot of people thought they were getting bargains, simply were getting the opportunity to overpay less for stocks that they had previously overpaid for. The same thing is true with cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Anybody who bought that dip didn't get a bargain. They're not buying value. They're buying nothing. They just don't understand that yet. And again, it's more interesting that since Bitcoin is not the safe haven store of value digital gold that it's marketed to be, but a highly speculative token, it was very correlated with other speculative assets. In other words, it didn't follow gold up during the quarter. It followed other speculative assets down. And since Bitcoin itself is far more speculative than most of these other assets, it has even more downside risk. And I think that downside risk is going to be even more apparent as the year progresses. Now, it wasn't a rough quarter for all stocks. As I've been saying on this podcast, there is a transition going on from momentum, hyped up type stocks into value and dividend paying stocks. I think most of that rotation began prior to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, but it still continued to a degree in the post-invasion environment. But if you take a look at the first quarter returns of my dividend payer and value funds, both of those funds were up 8.4% during the first quarter. And the gains would have been a lot better, I believe, had Russia never invaded the Ukraine because the outperformance of this fund prior to the invasion was actually better than the outperformance post-invasion because a lot of the European names that are in both of those funds got beat up pretty good following the invasion because Europe has a lot of ties with Russia and the European economies and companies and their earnings are being more disruptive by the sanctions 
than companies in other parts of the world. And so that worked against the strategy, although we did have some stocks that benefited from these sanctions. I think those stocks were going to benefit anyway, maybe not quite as much as they benefited with the sanctions. But I think on balance, the stocks that went down because of the sanctions would have continued to rise but for those sanctions. And by the way, the first day of the second quarter was extremely good for these funds. They spiked 1% for the value fund and 1.3% for the dividend payers fund. And so the dividend payers fund is now up 9.7% on the year and the value fund up 9.4%. This is a stark contrast to what's going on in the U.S. market. And by the way, this happened despite a rise in the dollar. During Q1, the dollar index rose about 1.5%. That is actually a headwind for these foreign funds. But what that means is in their local currencies, the returns were even greater than they are in U.S. dollars. But I think the headwind of a strong dollar that we had in Q1 is going to turn into a tailwind from a weak dollar that I expect to arrive as early as this quarter. And I think the dollar will get weaker and weaker as the year progresses. When you're running your own small business, it's those HR issues that can really kill you. Wrongful termination suits, discrimination lawsuits, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations, and HR managers ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created specifically for small businesses. Now you can get a dedicated HR manager who will craft HR policy, maintain your compliance, and do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to one of your biggest assets. You get your own dedicated HR manager who's available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding determinations. They'll customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day. And they'll do it all for just 99 bucks a month. Best part, it's month-to-month. There are no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. I sure wish Bambi was around when I was starting up my business. So just go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. But of course, as bad as the quarter was for stocks in general, it was much worse for bonds. Bonds suffered their worst quarter in over 40 years. On the flip side, it was a great quarter for commodities. Commodities had their best quarter in 32 years. And of course, that makes perfect sense because inflation is good for commodities. Inflation makes commodity prices rise, but inflation is terrible for bonds. So when there's a lot of inflation, you would expect bonds to do poorly and commodities to do well. And that's exactly what happened. But as bad as the quarter was for the bond market, it would have been much worse had investors had a more realistic outlook for future inflation because investors still believe that the Fed is going to get rid of inflation either because the rate hikes work and inflation goes away or because the rate hikes cause a recession and the recession does the Fed's job. So either the rate hikes will put out the inflation fire or recession will and that is the bet that bond investors are making and they are wrong. As I've said, I think the bond investors have it right 
in their belief that a recession is coming, but they have it wrong in their assumption that that recession is going to take care of the inflation problem. It won't because all recession does is diminish demand in the United States. It doesn't necessarily diminish demand outside the United States. And in fact, if the recession comes with a much weaker dollar, even though demand in the United States will go down, demand outside the United States will go up and Americans compete with everybody else for a lot of products. And so just because demand is lower here, if it's higher outside the United States, prices can still go up because the other part of the equation is supply. If demand goes down, but supply goes down more, well, prices go up. And that's what's going to happen during the next recession. Even if domestic demand falls, domestic supply will fall more in large part because the dollar is going to fall. And that's going to limit our ability to import. And that's going to result in more of what we produce being exported. And so, yes, Americans are going to spend less, but they're going to pay more for everything they buy. We are headed for stagflation. And for some reason, the bond market is clueless to this possibility. The bond market still believes that it's business as usual, that over the next 30 years, the Fed is going to be able to maintain near 0% interest rates, and the balance sheet is going to grow in perpetuity. We're just going to have brief episodes where the Fed nudges interest rates up slightly, stops a QE, maybe institutes a very small QT program where the balance sheet shrinks slightly, but then of course we go right into recession, rates go back to zero, the balance sheet explodes again, and the Fed can continue to do this for 30 years without a major collapse in the dollar, without a major explosion in inflation. And this is sheer nonsense. In fact, what's happening right now already disproves this ridiculous theory, yet investors are clinging to it anyway. But nowhere is this nonsense better depicted than in the yield curve. We had another major inversion on Friday where finally the yield on a two-year treasury exceeded the yield on a 30-year treasury. So now we have the yield on five-year treasuries exceeding the yield on 10-year treasuries and 30-year treasuries, and we have the yield on two-year treasuries exceeding both the yield on the 10-year and on the 30-year. In fact, here are the yields as we closed out on Friday. Two-year U.S. Treasuries yielding 2 spot 4.6%. They had a huge spike on Friday following the jobs report, which I will discuss a bit later in the podcast, but 2.46%. Contrast that to the 10-year Treasury yield at 238 and the 30-year treasury yield at two spot four three. The yield on the five-year, as I said, two spot five six, exceeds the yield on both the 10-year and the 30-year. The only parts of the curve that have yet to invert is the 10-year to the 30-year, where you still have a five basis point premium for the 30-year. But that is nothing. This is the narrowest I've ever seen this spread. Can you imagine an investor willing to take 20 years of additional inflation risk for five measly basis points? It is ridiculous that we're already this close. But I do believe 
probably maybe next week, we will see the 10-year invert the 30-year where the yield on the 10-year treasury will actually exceed the year on the 30-year treasury. Completely preposterous. But the other inversion that I expect is for the yield on the two-year to exceed the yield on the five-year. Because right now, there's only a 10 basis point spread between the two and the five, where the five is still higher than the two. But once we invert twos to fives, and then we invert tens to thirties, the entire yield curve will have inverted from two years all the way to 30 years. It will be a downward sloping line for the entirety of the yield curve. And how anybody can look at that and not recognize that a recession is coming because an inversion in the yield curve has traditionally been the best indicator of a recession. In fact, it would be very rare for the yield curve to invert and for a recession to not soon follow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. So it shows you how clueless investors are in the stock market to dismiss so clear a warning from the bond market. But of course, it's the bond investors that may be the most clueless of all because they don't understand the inflation scenario. Because if they did, the yield curve would not be inverting. And in fact, I think the bond market is probably one of the most mispriced assets, if not the most mispriced asset on the planet. And we are getting very close to a crash in the long end of the bond market because something is going to have to happen so that a significant minority of investors recognize the threat of inflation, understand that the next recession doesn't guarantee an end to inflation. In fact, I'm convinced that the next recession will actually fuel the inflation fire, that inflation will actually be worse once we go into recession than it was before. And that means that there is no relief when it comes to inflation, and that relief is already priced into the bond market. Well, when they have to price it back out, bonds are going to crash. And of course, when they do, the stock market is going to have to go down with it eventually because spiking bond yields are going to be very bad for the stock market. They're also going to be very bad for an over-leveraged economy that is dependent on cheap money to continue. Now, the flip side of bonds being overpriced because investors are underestimating the degree to which inflation is going to be a problem is gold being underpriced because gold is also a bet on inflation. And if investors are betting wrong on inflation, if investors don't understand how bad the inflation problem is, that's why they're overpaying for bonds, but that's also why they're underpaying for gold. You're not getting enough demand for gold as an inflation hedge because investors still don't understand how much inflation there is to hedge. Now, gold was up on the quarter. It was up 6.9%, so it had a decent quarter, but it's only the best quarter in two years. It's not the best quarter in 32 years, which was the case for commodities in general, 
And the reason for that is despite these booming commodity prices, investors still don't understand how much inflation there is. And so gold actually got cheaper on the quarter in terms of other commodities because investors don't understand the dynamics at play and they assume that other commodity prices are just going to come collapsing back down once the Russia-Ukraine situation is solved. That's not going to happen. The markets are wrong to blame this commodity bull market on Russia because commodity prices were already going up before the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, and they're going to continue to go up even after we have a resolution of that crisis. Take a look at oil in particular. Oil was up about 33% on the quarter, but a lot of those gains were prior to the February 24th invasion of the Ukraine. And in fact, on Thursday, President Biden gave a speech when he announced that the U.S. was going to now have the biggest sale ever of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I think we're doing a million barrels a day. And in his speech, Biden specifically blamed Putin for high gas prices, said that it's all because of the invasion of the Ukraine, and therefore the government is going to have to respond to this emergency by tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve so that we can take away the Putin price hikes. Well, I looked at the price of oil on the day that Biden delivered that speech, and I noticed that since that February 24th invasion, oil prices were only up about 11%. That's it. Now, at one point, they were up more because we got to about $130 a barrel, but on the morning of that speech, we were only about $100 a barrel, and that was only about 11% higher than we were on February 23rd. However, if you go back to when Biden took the oath of office, since then, the price of oil was up 96%. So only a small portion of the total increase in oil prices took place post-Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. So how are you going to blame the entirety of the price rise on Putin when only about 10% of the increase occurred after Putin invaded the Ukraine? Oil prices were going up anyway. In fact, had Putin never invaded the Ukraine, oil would probably be about where it is now. Now, I don't think prices would have hit 130. I think that move was certainly related to the invasion, but we've already pulled back substantially since that point. So maybe had there never been an invasion, oil would still be about $100 a barrel. We just would have gotten to 100 in a more orderly way, but Americans would still be paying much higher prices at the pump than they were when Biden was inaugurated. And in fact, they were already paying much higher prices before the invasion. They've just continued to go up, but they would have continued anyway. Also, what Biden is doing with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is a mistake, and it's being entirely driven by the politics of the upcoming midterm elections. This is not what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is here for. It's about real emergencies where there's no oil. We have a disruption in the supply and it's not here. We can't get the oil. That's not what's going on. 
We've got plenty of oil. You just have to pay higher prices in order to have it. But that's not an emergency. An emergency is when there is no oil. There's nothing to buy. And so the economy is going to shut down because we no longer have access to energy. Something actually happens to disrupt the flow. And that's when we would fall back on our strategic petroleum reserves. It's not about protecting Americans from rising prices. It's about protecting Americans from no oil at any price. So this is not an appropriate use of this reserve. And if anything, it's going to put in jeopardy the nation to the extent that in the future we have a real crisis, we don't have any access to oil, and we no longer have any strategic petroleum reserves. Because I think we may end up drawing them down to nothing. Because prices are going to keep going up. After the midterm election, there's going to be another election. And I think we're going to have a huge political incentive to keep on depleting these reserves And we're never going to build them back up again. In fact, all the oil that we're selling now at maybe $100 a barrel, if we decide to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we're going to be buying back the oil we sold at much higher prices. Oil might be $150 a barrel. It may be $200 a barrel. And what's going to happen if we have some kind of natural disaster or some real emergency happens when we need those reserves and they're no longer available? In fact, selling off our reserves reserves now makes us even more vulnerable to an external shock. Let's say oil exporting nations really want to leverage their position with the United States. If they know that we have exhausted our reserves, that gives them a better position with which to use their oil as a weapon when they realize that we're defenseless because we depleted our reserves, not when there was a real emergency, but when there was a political emergency because the Politicians in power wanted to stay in power, and so they were willing to sacrifice our strategic petroleum reserves in order to do so. Putin is not the cause of high oil prices. Putin is the convenient scapegoat by which politicians can blame for high oil prices. And the Biden administration is certainly going to milk this for all it can. It's going to be blaming Putin for everything that goes wrong up until the midterm elections. But if investors understood that inflation is not being caused by Putin, but by factors that have nothing to do with that invasion, they would be buying more gold. They would be selling more bonds. It's only because they expect higher prices to be transitory, not transitory in the sense that the Fed originally claimed just a longer period of transition. Most people just assume that once COVID is behind us. Once this war is behind us, well, we're just going to go back to sub 2% annual rates of inflation. And so no reason to buy gold and no reason to sell your bonds because nothing has changed. Well, everything has changed and the investors don't know it. Although it's not that the fundamentals have changed. All that's changed is that now the fundamentals are going to matter. They didn't matter for a while because we had a bubble. Well, now the bubble has popped and now it's all that matters. It's just that so many investors don't understand that it's a bubble. They don't know that it's popped. They don't understand what the dynamics were leading up to the popping of this bubble. They just think that it can continue. What was the exception was what happened before the bubble popped. These ridiculously low long-term interest rates, the Fed's ability to print all this money without seeing a more meaningful impact 
on consumer prices, that was the exception, not the rule. Where we are now is back to the rule. We are now gonna experience the delayed consequences of all that monetary madness. Investors just don't understand it yet, but they are in for a rude awakening. Now, gold stocks, they had a pretty good quarter. Gold stocks were up about 20% during Q1, but they would have been up again much more had we had a bigger move up in the price of gold. The fact that investors still don't get what's going on and gold wasn't up more, that's what kept investors on the sideline from being more aggressive in their buying of gold stocks. But I think a lot of those sidelined investors are going to enter the field of play in the second quarter because I do expect the price of gold to take off. I think we're going to blow through 2000 blow through 2100 We're going to go much higher. Gold is going to be repriced for the reality of much higher inflation, just like bonds are going to be repriced. In the case of gold, gold will be repriced much higher. In the case of bonds, much lower. But all of this portends negative results for the U.S. stock market and for the U.S. economy. I want to talk to you guys about something that I just started using literally every day. I'm starting my mornings off with a glass of Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens because I've been having some digestive issues, as many of you point out in the comments section of my podcast. So I'm hoping that Athletic Greens will improve my gut health. With just one delicious scoop, I'm absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and antigens to help get my day started off right. This special blend of ingredients supports gut health, a healthy nervous system, your immune system, and fills you with energy and helps your recovery, your focus, and aging. And now, Athletic Greens is offering my listeners a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com Peter. The product is very easy to use. You just mix one scoop with a glass of water, shake it up, and drink. And it's a great way to start your morning because not only is it good for you, but it tastes good. In fact, you wouldn't know it from the great taste, but Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations. And it's certainly a lot cheaper than buying all the supplements you would need separately that you get in one glass. And now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. All it requires is one scoop in a cup of water each morning. That's it. No need for millions of different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Just make it easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Peter. Again, that's athleticgreens.com Peter to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. In fact, speaking about the U.S. economy, a lot of economic data was released in the last two days since I recorded my Wednesday podcast. I want to go over some of that data, starting with the personal income and spending data that was released on Thursday. February personal income rose 0.5%, which was in line with what analysts had expected, and that followed a smaller 0.1% rise in January, but the personal spending number was a bit disappointing. Spending was up just 
0.2% versus the 0.5% that had been expected, although the prior January month was upwardly revised to up 2.7%. So we had a big jump in spending in January. But again, it doesn't mean that consumers bought more stuff just because they spent more money. What it actually means is consumers paid more money for the stuff they bought. They may have actually bought less, but paid more. I can give you a perfect example from my own experience. I ordered two chaise lounges, or my wife ordered them, a few months ago. And they were to go on the roof deck of my condo here in Puerto Rico. And the reason we ordered them is we had some chaise lounges there, but a couple of them had broke. And so we were ordering two new ones to go with two old ones that were still in good shape. And when they arrived, I noticed that they didn't match. I mean, for some reason, we didn't pick up on that. They were a different color. And when we called up the store here in Puerto Rico where we bought them, we found that the colors of the original chairs had been discontinued. And so we basically decided to just get another two chairs and have four new ones. And I'll figure out what to do with the old ones. Maybe I'll use them here at the house. I'm building some more decks here on our roof. Maybe we'll put the chairs up there. But we ordered two more chairs, identical to the two chairs that we had ordered a few months back. And of course, it took us three to four months to get them because that's how long it takes to get anything over here. It wasn't nearly as bad before COVID and before the invasion, but this is how long you have to wait to get stuff. So we ordered another two chairs, the same company, the exact same chairs, the difference is now the chairs are 15% more expensive. So they've raised the price by 15%. So buying two additional chairs, I'm spending 15% more money. So my personal spending is up by 15% on those two chairs. Now, does that mean the economy is good because I'm spending 15% more money? No, I'm getting the exact chairs that I bought before. I bought two chairs and now I'm buying another two. They're no different than the two I bought before, but it's costing me 15% more. I'm not better off because I had to spend 15% more money to buy the same chairs I bought before. I am worse off because I now have less money to spend on other things. Maybe when I bought the original chairs, I had some extra money to buy a side table. But now because I have to pay so much more for the next two chairs, I have to forego the side table. So I am worse off. I'm paying more, but I am getting less. And I think that's what's going on throughout the economy. Now, personally, I have enough money so that just because these chairs cost more, if I want to buy the tables, I can buy them. Having to pay more money for chairs isn't going to impact my spending. But that's not going to be the case for people who have a lot lower incomes than I do. As they spend more on certain products, they have to spend less on other products. And so that is bad for the economy. That is bad for the companies that sell those other products that are going to lose sales because other products that they don't sell are more expensive. Now, just because I don't have to reduce my consumption based on higher prices doesn't mean it has no effect on me because the extra money that I have to spend to buy these chairs has to come from somewhere. 
And in my case, it comes from savings. It comes from investing. Because I have to spend more money to buy chairs, I have less money to save and invest. And that hurts the economy because it's saving and investing that grows the economy. So to the extent that people who are wealthy have to spend more, then they invest less. They save less. So that hurts the economy even more than when people who have less income have to give up consumption on some items in order to pay more for other items, but everything hurts. Everybody's standard of living ultimately gets reduced by rising prices, yet the government can point to these statistics of higher spending and claim that it means that the economy is getting better. It's not, because it's not reflective of higher consumption. It probably reflects reduced consumption. All it means is that people are paying more and getting less. In fact, you can see that in the data itself because part of the personal income and spending numbers is the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, which purports to measure inflation. And in fact, this is the Federal Reserve's favorite inflation measure. Now, I think the reason it's the favorite is because it's the measure that most understates inflation because it's got the most substitution involved. And so it's really distorted. But even with all those distortions, it was still up 6.4% year over year. That is the biggest year over year rise in the PCE since 1982. It's more than triple the Fed's 2% target. And given how bad this number is, you would expect a much more aggressive move by the Fed to fight off this inflation and we're not getting it. Now, sure, the Fed is talking tough about fighting inflation, but their actions are not going to match their words. In fact, even their tough talk is not really tough because if you listen to what the Fed claims they're going to do in the face of this really unprecedented inflation, now, if you want to claim, okay, it's not unprecedented, it's not quite as bad as the 1970s, you'd be wrong because it's worse. It only appears not to be as bad because we've changed the way we measure it. But even if you accept the government's flawed measures, this is the worst inflation since the 1970s. And the Fed isn't even coming close to doing what was done in the 1980s to get rid of that inflation, but the public is still buying the Fed's rhetoric. In fact, I was listening to this lady interviewed on CNBC about inflation, and at least this woman recognized that inflation was going to get worse. According to what she said, she expects the CPI to soon reveal a 9% year-over-year increase in consumer prices, which would be higher than what we've got right now. And so she said the Fed needs to really get tough on inflation fighting. And what she claims would be tough would be for the Fed to raise interest rates all the way up to 2%. Now, she didn't give a timetable about how quickly the Fed needs to get to 2%, but she didn't suggest that the Fed needed to do more than 50 basis point rate hikes. And I don't even think she claimed that we need to get to 2% before the end of the year, but maybe over the course of the next 365 days, she would like to see the Fed get up to 2%. And that would be getting really tough on inflation. But 
How is 2% interest rates getting tough on 9% inflation? That's still negative 7% real interest rates. How are you going to fight inflation with negative 7% interest rates? There is no precedent for any central bank anywhere in the world successfully fighting off inflation with negative interest rates. You need to get interest rates positive to successfully fight off inflation. And if you don't even come close to even neutral, if you're still minus 7%, how anybody can consider such an easy monetary policy as being tough on inflation is beyond me. Clearly, this woman has no idea what tight money means or what fighting inflation means because probably during her entire adult life when she's been managing money, she's never actually experienced any inflation and she's never actually experienced the Fed fighting inflation. All she's experienced is the Fed raising rates to 2%. And so she thinks 2% represents tight money when in fact it's ultra loose money. It's only by the ridiculous standards of 0% that 2% looks high. But in contrast to 9% inflation, 2% is still extremely low and is going to be completely ineffective if your actual goal is fighting inflation. And in fact, we got more data on inflation coming out of the Eurozone on Friday. And I spoke a lot about the inflation problem in Europe on my last podcast. Well, we got official confirmation when we got the Eurozone year-over-year inflation numbers that came out on Friday. And Consumer prices in the Eurozone, the way they measure them, and I'm sure there's some flaws to their methodology too, just like there's flaws in ours, but even with their flawed measure, consumer prices were up 7.5% year over year in the Eurozone. That is a record. That is the most prices have increased in the Eurozone since they formed the common currency better than 20 years ago. And think about this in perspective. And I talked about this a little bit in the last podcast. But when year-over-year Eurozone inflation was around 1.5% or whatever it was, but it was not quite close enough to 2%, the ECB had drastic monetary policy response with quantitative easing and 0% interest rates. The ECB acted as if it was some kind of monetary emergency because inflation was not close enough to their goal of being close to but not 2%. So they were at 1.5% and they really needed to get inflation up to 1.9%. And this was a real emergency and it required decisive action because we really needed to save European consumers from the horror of dealing with inflation that was too low because the consumer prices were not rising fast enough. This was a huge problem. They were only rising by 1.5% a year, and we needed them to rise by 1.9%. And so the ECB was going to do whatever it takes. They were going to pull out all the stops. They were going to solve this non-existent problem and make sure that the cost of living in Europe rose faster than the current pace. And they were going to make sure it was very close to their 2% target. Well, now we're at seven and a half percent. We are so much more above two percent than we ever were below. I mean, we're five and a half percent above two percent. We're not a half a percent below. We are miles above two percent. So 
If the goal of the ECB is to have inflation of just under 2% and being way down at one and a half was such a problem that it required a drastic monetary policy solution, why isn't being five and a half percentage points above 2% an even bigger problem? Why doesn't this call for even more drastic a solution? Because after all, if being slightly below 2%, was a problem, isn't being miles above 2% a much bigger problem? Of course it is, because the other problem they were trying to solve was non-existent. That wasn't a problem. This is, this is a huge problem, yet the ECP is doing nothing about it. Interest rates are still zero. They haven't raised interest rates in the face of 7.5% inflation. They're still doing quantitative easing. They haven't stopped doing it, so the very policy that was specifically designed to solve a non-existent problem of too low inflation is still being pursued, even though that very policy has now created the real problem of too high inflation. They continue to print money and keep rates at zero, which again proves that it was never about inflation being too low. That was just an excuse that I pointed out in real time. It was all about subsidizing Southern European governments to monetize their debt, to spare them the political consequences of having to cut government spending or raise taxes or potentially drop out of the Eurozone completely in order to keep the Eurozone together, the ECB pursued these reckless policies under the guise of inflation being too low. But now that inflation is clearly much too high, it exposes the lie inherent in that policy, which should have been obvious all along from the absurdity of the contention that low inflation is a problem. But it's amazing how many people in the investment community, in academia, were dumb enough to buy this asinine excuse. Same thing again about Japan. Inflation is now a huge problem in Japan, yet the Japanese government has not altered their policy that was designed to make inflation higher. Now that it's much too high, they're doing nothing to bring the rate back down, which again exposes the truth about the Japanese policy. It was never about the problem of too low inflation. It was about the problem of too much debt, especially on the part of the Japanese government. And so the Bank of Japan was trying to ease the burden on the Japanese government of having to service this enormous debt without having to cut government spending or raise taxes. It's ironic that the only central bank that is talking about fighting inflation is the Fed. But as I said, all they're doing is talking. They're not going to actually fight it. Their inconsequential tiny rate hikes are going to do nothing. In fact, the only reason they're raising rates at all is to pretend that they can keep on doing it. But at some point, they will reverse course because the bond market has that right these higher rates are going to cause a recession, and it's not going to take that many hikes to push the economy into recession, given how addicted the economy is and how over-leveraged the economy is. And so once the impact on the economy and on the financial markets is felt, then the Fed is going to give up all the tough talk, and inflation is going to continue to get worse. We also got some bad news on construction spending. Spending on construction was supposed to increase by 0.9%, and instead it only increased by 0.5%, although there was a slight upward revision from up 13 to 1.6% in January. But again, these are spending numbers, how much it costs to construct. It doesn't reflect an increase in construction per se. It just reflects an increase 
in the cost of construction because I believe that fewer buildings are now being constructed due to the accelerating costs of building them. So what's happening is we're constructing fewer structures, but we are paying a lot more to construct the ones we are building. And that's why construction spending is going up because builders are spending more money to build fewer homes. So again, this is not good news. This is bad news for the economy. And it's also bad news for the whole industry because fewer people are gonna be employed in construction because we're not gonna be constructing as much, which means the supply of homes is gonna be constrained because new ones aren't gonna be built. And that is going to help keep prices high for the homes that already have been built because there won't be as much competition from the new houses coming onto the market. We also got ISM manufacturing numbers that came out weaker than expected. That index was supposed to come out at 59 in March, and that would have been a slight improvement from the 58.6 that we got in February. Instead, we got a drop down to 57.1, so a much weaker than expected ISM manufacturing number. But the big economic number of the week was the non-farm payroll number, the jobs report that came out on Friday, And that number came out a little bit weaker than expected, but I think it was the upward revisions that spooked the market because several months were revised upward. The February month, which was originally reported at plus 678,000 jobs, was revised to up 750,000 jobs. The March number, which was estimated to come in at 490,000, came in at 431,000. But also, it was the drop in the unemployment rate, which stood at 3.8% in the prior month. It was expected to notch down to 3.7%. Instead, it went down to 3.6%. That is an extremely low rate of unemployment. Now, of course, we don't calculate the unemployment rate the way we used to, just like we don't calculate the inflation rate the way we used to. So the current methodology for calculating inflation understates it. Well, the current methodology for counting unemployment also understates the percentage of people who are unemployed. But be that as it may, this is a low number, 3.6%. Given how high the inflation numbers are and how low the unemployment number is, and since most economists on the Fed, probably all the economists on the Fed, believe incorrectly that employment and inflation are related, meaning that low unemployment causes inflation, that too many people working somehow causes inflation, which it doesn't, but I know they believe that. And so given what they believe, interest rates should be much higher than they are right now. We have a huge inflation problem and the Fed continues to drag their feet. Even though they acknowledge that it's a big problem, they're doing nothing about solving it. Raising interest rates from zero to 25 basis points in the face of this huge problem is not solving it. It's continuing to make it worse. They are throwing gasoline on a fire even though they acknowledge that the fire is burning, which again proves that it's not about inflation. The Fed knows they can't fight inflation, but they also know they can't admit that. And so they're trying to solve the problem by pretending they're fighting inflation, even though they continue to create it. 
Getting back to this jobs numbers, though, the labor force participation rate, which was at 62.3 in February, that increased in line with expectations to 62.4, but labor force participation is increasing. And so from the perspective of the Fed, that puts more upward pressure on wages. And by the way, maybe the Fed is also alarmed at the fact that workers in New York voted to approve the formation of a labor union in Amazon. And I'm sure this strength of the labor movement, the fact that these Amazon workers are now for the first time, at least in the state of New York, unionizing, maybe the Fed looks at this at the potential beginning of a trend that will give more power to labor unions to demand higher wages. And I know all these guys believe in the wage price spiral. They think inflation can be caused by workers demanding higher salaries. Certainly, if you look at this news, you would regard this as inflationary. Now, personally, I look at it more as bad news for the workers at Amazon in New York because it's likely that Amazon isn't going to be hiring any more people to work in New York to the extent that they're going to hire more people. They're going to do it in states where there is no labor union. In fact, they may end up cutting back on employment in the New York area. And of course, now that Amazon workers have a union, well, now they have to pay union dues. So those union dues are going to have to come out of their pay. And so they're going to have to get higher wages just to offset the new costs of having to subsidize the union. If anything, the strengthening of the labor union, the reason that it's bad for the overall economy is because it will make those businesses that have to deal with organized labor less efficient. They will be less productive. They will create fewer jobs. So it is bad for the economy, but it's not causing inflation. What causes inflation is the Federal Reserve and their expansion of the money supply. And to the extent that the economy gets weaker, they're going to try to expand the money supply even more aggressively to try to stimulate it, which is why we're going to have more inflation during the next recession. But also getting back to the components of the non-farm payroll report, average hourly earnings rose by 0.4% on the month. That was in line with expectations, but they did upwardly revise the February number, which was initially reported as unchanged, to up 0.1. And so that meant the year-over-year increase in average hourly earnings was 5.6, which was slightly above the 5.5 that was expected. But if you go back to February, the year-over-year increase was just 5.2, although it was originally reported as up 5.1. But you have a 0.4% acceleration in year-over-year average hourly earnings than the upwardly revised February number, which should be problematic for the Fed because labor costs are rising faster. Now, of course, they're rising more slowly than consumer prices. So just because workers are earning 5% more in nominal terms, they're earning quite a bit less in real terms because even the way the government measures inflation, it's up 8%. But in real terms, it's up twice as much because the government doesn't capture it. Again, remember, I talked about the two chaise lounges I bought. They were up 15% in a matter of three or four months. Who knows how much those chaise lounges are going to cost at the end of the year. My guess is the year-over-year increase in the price of those chairs is probably going to end up being closer to 50%, if not more than 50%. That's more indicative of what's going on with consumer prices 
than what the government claims with their highly rigged CPI. But even using the government's own rigged numbers, real wages are declining. And in fact, if you look at the average hourly work week, that even declined. So not only are real wages going down, but fewer hours are being worked. So that means income is not even going up as much as the increase in wages because the increase in wages has to do with the hours that you work, how much you're paid for each hour of work. But if you work fewer hours, then you have less pay because you're not getting paid for doing as much work. And so that complicates the problem with your ability to afford an increasing cost of living. If not only aren't your wages keeping pace with that increase, but you're not even working as many hours, so you're not getting the full impact of the increase in wages, but you do suffer the full impact of the increase in prices. Thank you.